Amen. Well, we are going to continue in our sermon series through the book of Galatians. This is just our third week in the series. So uh, let me invite you to find your way in your Bibles or in your apps to Galatians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. We're going to pick up where we left off. And as you do that, let me give you a quick review of the context, a quick review of what Paul's already said so far. Uh, again, this is written by the Apostle Paul. Paul here is writing this letter to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. And since he's left that area, false teachers have come into those churches and they've caused problems. They've, they've really confused the believers there specifically on the nature of the gospel. What is the gospel? What's the message of the gospel? And, and the main culprits there are a group of people that were called Judaizers. And Judaizers were basically these people who would come in and say, you know, your faith in Jesus is good. It's just not enough especially for you Gentiles or especially for you non-Jews. You also need to follow the Jewish law if you want to be heirs of God's promise to Abraham, the patriarch. In other words, they were saying, listen, salvation is achieved, achieved by some kind of cooperation between God's grace and our works. Okay, that, that was ultimately the message to them. And Paul hears this report and he's furious. I mean, of the 13 letters we have in the New Testament written by Paul, this is definitely the most strongest worded letter. You're going to see that as we continue some of the language he uses. We're like, oh, okay, Paul, uh, you're not playing around. Uh, we saw that even last week when he said, literally, if someone preaches a different message, they can be condemned to hell. I mean, he's taking this very serious. And so, so he writes this letter to correct the false teachers, to guide and shepherd these believers who are being led astray. But he ultimately wants to remind them, listen, you don't need to be caught up in this. You don't need to be caught up in the slavery of religion. And, and that's an important point because what he's saying is, it's not that don't be caught up in the slavery of religion. It's you don't need to be caught up in the slavery of religion. Because the gospel brings freedom. The gospel brings freedom. In fact, probably the key verse in the entire letter is Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. And here Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So again, he's saying, listen, the gospel brings with it freedom. And so what we've seen so far is that in the letter is that, again, the main point of the letter is that it brings with it this freedom that we have from, from having to earn our salvation, freedom from having to justify ourselves before God, freedom from having to present our own righteousness to the Lord as if it's something that can be accepted by a perfectly righteous God. And now he's saying, listen, salvation is always a gift. It's freely given to us. Because of that, we're free from crushing weight of any legalistic religion that would say otherwise. And so he's saying, listen, there's freedom here. Stand firm. And so in our next passage this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting in verse, 12, uh, verse 11. What we're going to see is that because the gospel sets us free, frees us from self-righteousness, having to earn our salvation, having to prove ourselves, what it also does is it brings us freedom from our pasts. Freedom from our past. Both those parts of our past that look religious and that look righteous but have no standing before a perfectly righteous God. 
as well as those parts of our past that don't resemble anything religious or righteous. And, you know, one of the beauties of the local church, and we've said this many times, is that the local church is made up of people with very different backgrounds, very different experiences, very different upbringings, uh, various um, uh, experiences with the church, outside the church, all of these things. And yet because of the gospel, it brings us together as one body. And, and so we all have these different stories. However, the one thing all of our stories have in common is that they all include a past, right? And, and our past have real influence on who we are today, right? It has real influence on what we think today and what we expect today. And for you, maybe your past might even shape how you view God, your salvation, perhaps grace, the gospel. And you might be here this morning, in fact, and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian per se, but you like the sound of it. But deep in your heart, what's keeping you from turning to faith in Christ is this nagging feeling that he would never accept you because of the things that you've done. And he knows, and you know that. And so you haven't turned to faith in him. Or you might be here this morning, and even though you have come to faith in Christ, and intellectually you know that the gospel has covered all of your sins, you still struggle with guilt for your past. That somehow it influenced the way you view your relationship with God. Again, we all have a past, and for many of us, it can be hard to break from them. Well, in our passage this morning, we find some encouragement to remember the gospel is freedom. The gospel is freedom. We'll see through the life and testimony of Paul that it does bring freedom from our past. And what we're going to see is specifically that the work of God in the gospel is both abundantly gracious and it's infinitely powerful. It's abundantly gracious and infinitely powerful. And because those two things are true, it brings incredible implications for our lives today. So uh, let's go ahead and look at Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. So this, these two verses really kind of form the thesis of the rest of chapter one and really all of chapter two. So the next couple of weeks, this is kind of what Paul's pointing to because what happens is for false teachers to come in and to build credibility for themselves and their message, at the same time, what they have to do is discredit Paul in, in his message. And so Paul regularly in other places as well, in Corinthians, for example, he has to kind of um, um, defend himself to say, I know these guys are saying this, but I have some credibility here, right? And so the first thing he's saying here is basically saying, listen, I didn't make this stuff up. Like I didn't just think one day this would make a nice gospel or I, I, I hope that this would be true or people would really like to hear this. So this is what I'm going to tell them. He, he says, I, I didn't make this up. In fact, no one else even told me this. I actually received this message from the resurrected Christ himself. And we're going to look at that encounter here in just a moment. But first this reminds us that the gospel has a divine origin. The gospel has a divine origin. The good news of God's work through Jesus for the redemption of his people is a message that, that transcends human wisdom. 
And since that's the case, we shouldn't be surprised when the rest of the world sees it, and looks at it, hears it, and thinks it's foolish. Like we shouldn't be stunned when Christianity is mocked. We shouldn't be stunned when the church is ridiculed because of our belief in the gospel. In fact, Paul reminds the church of Corinth this in his first letter to them. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Again, the gospel is folly or it's foolish, it's silly for those who don't see their need for it. But for those of us who recognize our need for it and see the beauty of God's work in it, I mean, it's everything to us. It's not foolish. It's not folly. And this is more than just this intellectual denial of the truths of the gospel. There really is a spiritual condition that underlies all of it. He would go on to say this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, the natural person, meaning the, the unregenerate person, the one who's still dead in their sins, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. A spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Again, this is really important for us to understand because I think it might be tempting to think that, man, if only I could just explain it just right, the gospel message. Or if I could just answer all of the objections that people have for the gospel, then everyone would turn to faith in Christ. They wouldn't see it as foolish. They wouldn't mock my faith. But understand that the Bible says, yeah, people have questions and we should answer them as best as we absolutely can. But people mock the gospel, not because they don't understand it, but because they're hardened to it. Again, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. And, and so Paul just embraces that. He says, yeah, I get it. The gospel's folly to those who don't know it. But it's the power of God to salvation for me. So put all my hope in it. Some people are hardened to it. And, and again, if there was ever a person who fit that description, it was the Apostle Paul before his conversion, right? Before his encounter with Jesus, he goes on to describe this to the Galatian believers again in Galatians chapter 1. Again, so he said, no one's taught me this message. I've experienced it. Verse 13, he says, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He's saying, listen, um, not only did I hear this message from Jesus, but man, it, it's completely changed my life because remember my past. He says, many of you have heard that past. He says, I, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy Paul or, or Saul in the early chapters of Acts. If you don't know his story, he absolutely hated the church. He absolutely hated the Christians who followed Christ. And in fact, in the book of Acts, you read about some of his actions. So for example, in Acts 8, Paul, Saul approves of the execution of, of a man named Stephen, a, a follower of Jesus, who's stoned to death for his faith in Jesus. In that same um, section, Paul is uh, seeking to drag Christians, both men and women, to prison because of their faith in Christ. In Acts 26, when he's, again, giving his testimony, he actually explains that whenever uh, Christians stood on trial for their faith, he said, my vote was always the same, death. 
I always cast a vote for the death penalty. I wanted them to die. And so Paul, again, he wanted to do everything in his power to stamp out Christianity. And again, he did this because he thought what he was doing was right. He thought what he was doing was good. Again, he says in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Like, like Paul was this rising superstar in the Pharisee world. Uh, he would have been the guy with the podcasts. He would have been the guy speaking at the conferences, the guy with the book deals, um, huge followers on social media, right? Like, but here's Saul not only persecuting the church, but he's doing it in the name of religion. Doing it because he thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was doing good things. He, what he was doing was holy and righteous and even God honoring. He says, you remember my past. Some of it looked really religious. Some of it certainly didn't. But something radically changed in me. Something changed. And he goes on Galatians 1 verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So again, he's saying, he's arguing for some credibility here. Basically what he's saying is, listen, I, I, I heard the gospel for myself no one taught it to me. In fact, even after I encountered Christ, even after my life was radically changed, I didn't even like run up to Jerusalem where, you know, the apostles were to kind of check in with them, to kind of let them like evaluate my experience and affirm uh, what, what's going on there. He says, you know, I, I, I went there, but, but that, not immediately. Um, he, he's saying, no, the proof was my life was absolutely changed. It was radically changed. He says, I, I knew the Jesus that I hated. Like I, I now experienced the grace that I didn't think I needed. I was a very different person. But notice his phrasing in verse 15 again. He says, but when he, or but when God. It's this great phrase used in other places in the Bible as well. Just to remind us that conversion is an act of intervention divine intervention. It's like Paul saying, like, I was leading my life in this way. I was headed this direction. I was on this certain path in my life, but God intervened. He stepped in. And in Paul's case, he stepped in a very dramatic, spectacular way. And again, if you don't know the story, let's read it very quickly. This is Acts chapter 9, where we read about this. We'll read this very quickly. Verse 1. Luke writes for us, but Saul, it's Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters or permission to the synagogues at Damascus so that, that if he found any belonging to the way or to Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him 
stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so here's the resurrected Christ intervening with Paul, and God then calls a man named Ananias to go find Paul, to pray with him, to restore his vision. Jumping down to verse 17, it says, So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So again, for Paul, on the way to Damascus, on the way to persecute the church, Paul's conversion was very much a real, literal, divine intervention by Jesus. He's confronted by the risen Christ. And in that intervention, he sees his own brokenness, but he also sees Christ's beauty and the grace that he needs and the grace that's being offered. And here's the thing. This is always the case with conversion. This is always the case with conversion. In fact, Paul would describe it like this in another place, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, just as God at creation spoke into the void of darkness to bring about light, God at every new creation or every conversion speaks into the darkness of our hearts to bring out the light of new life. That when he shines in our hearts, we, we see ourselves, we see our brokenness, we see our sin, and yet at the same time, we see Jesus who invites us to come to him and bring with us all of that brokenness and sin. We understand on the road to Damascus, Paul not only saw Jesus with his eyes, at least for a moment, but he saw Jesus with his heart. And all who have come to faith in Christ have had a similar experience. I mean, think about that. Before coming to faith in Christ, think about how you viewed God or Christ or spiritual things. Many things of God were dull, right? They were boring. Jesus was irrelevant. He may have even been a myth to you. But one day, through some means of hearing the gospel, perhaps on a Sunday morning or by a family member or by a friend or a colleague or a podcast or a book or simply opening up a Bible you had at your disposal, God opens the eyes of your heart and you finally see the beauty of God's work in Jesus for you. God intervened in your life. God shined in your heart. Uh, there's this light that in what had been a darkness that you didn't even realize you were in. And so understand that Christians, they might not all have this um, Damascus Road experience as dramatic as Paul does, but we all do have a 2 Corinthians 4 experience in which God speaks into our hearts. The eyes are open, that the beauty of God is finally realized in the face of Jesus Christ. And again, this has massive ramifications for our life. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about here. Again, he's lined up in these verses. Again, the gospel has a divine origin. Remember my past. Remember how it absolutely changed me because of God's intervention. 
But finally, he points them to the results of that intervention. Go, go look again at Galatians 1 verse 18. It says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. What I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only we're hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. And so again, he's trying to distance himself a little bit from having to say that he was taught by man. So he's kind of saying, yes, I did go up to Jerusalem. But listen, it was after three years. I was only there for 15 days. I only saw Peter and James. I didn't even meet with everybody. Again, he's just trying to say, my experience is the credibility. What I heard was the credibility. So just like, just imagine for a moment that in this time before TV, before online news, before social media, Paul was so treacherous and so frightening that Christians who had never met him or seen him knew about him. I mean, he was so scary that word traveled that there's this man who's so zealous for his faith that he's looking for Christians. And it's not to shake their hands, but to bind them, take them to jail and see them die. And, and so, so Paul's like, man, man, the churches knew who I was and what I did, my past. But God lavished his grace on me so much that this faith that I was trying to destroy, now I'm preaching. That while I tried to kill God's kids, I became one of God's kids. And the result, he says, that the churches who were once terrified of me and scared that I'm going to come knock on their door actually glorified God because of me. Now, now notice he doesn't say they didn't glorify me because of God. They glorified God because of me. Why? Because only God can make a change like that. Only God takes the dead and brings them to life. Only God takes enemies of the church, and makes them members and leaders of the church. You understand that the gospel, what it does is it takes our past sin, which is the source of our shame, and it transforms it into the means of God's glory. It's against the black backdrop of our old lives that the beauty of Christ's work shines forth. And so when we think about our past, we don't cower away from our stories. We don't cower away from our past sin. We certainly don't boast in them as if we're proud of, of those things. However, we own them. And in our willingness to speak of them, what we end up actually doing is actually boasting in Christ. Because Christ is the one who's forgiven us. Christ is the one who has saved us. Christ is the one who has redeemed us. And what happens when we do that? Well, the church glorifies God because of you. I mean, every year uh, at Christmas, uh, Advent time, we, have, we do our Advent videos, if you, you know those. And, and there are oftentimes these stories of, of God's work in someone's life and Sometimes we reach out because we know of someone's story and say, man, this would be such a benefit to the church. And like, I understand a lot of times you're like, ah, I'm not really ready to share my story and that's totally fine. But understand what it does is it says, man, this is how good Christ is. And the church glorifies God because of you. Right, and so ultimately this section of Galatians, here's Paul, he's trying to say to the church is number one, I didn't make this up, right? Like I heard it, from Jesus. And secondly, it's radically changed me. 
Now, for us this morning, what it does for us, again, is it reminds us that the work of God in the gospel is both abundantly gracious and it's infinitely powerful. And again, that has huge implications for our lives. And here's what I want to make sure we catch. That because the work of God in the gospel is abundantly gracious, there really is freedom from your past. There really is freedom from your past. Um, in the sports world, especially in, in baseball, for example, uh, there has long been controversy about the legacy of players who are caught cheating, specifically using PEDs or performance enhancing drugs, steroids, because it's against the rules. And, and it's been a controversy because a lot of times these guys are really good. And in fact, during that time, they actually break records. And so this presented some kind of a, a problem, right? So there's a little bit of controversy. Well, how do we talk about those people? Right? Like, what do we do with them? Like, do we say they earn their place in the Hall of Fame? Do we say that their name belongs on the records list of these records that they broke? Because they did cheat. Right? Well, one solution was to go ahead, yeah, put their name there. We'll make it on whatever list there might be. But along with their name, we're going to put a little asterisk. And what that asterisk does is it just lets everyone know that this player, even though he did some really great things, he has a tainted past, right? Like it's a way of telling others that are there and learning about this person that yes, it's, it's, he deserves some recognition, but, but their standing is not quite equal to the other people in that list. That their accomplishment should be questioned in some way. And that's true of players, that's true of whole teams, and the thing is, I think that we might be a little tempted to think of our own standing with God in the same way because of our pasts. That it might feel for you that, that God sees you as his child, but in your heart you think, surely he doesn't love me as much as he loves his other kids. Or that, that your name really is in the book of life that the Bible talks about. Your name's there, but there's a little asterisk there because of my past. In fact, one sports writer, he actually described our questioning the legitimacy of a player or team as using mental typography. Like we just, it's not, maybe it's not written anywhere, but in our mind, we just kind of like, there's an asterisk there when we think about this person or this, this team. And we might do the same with others in the church. Your name has no asterisk on any role we have here at the church, uh, but, but, but you might look around the room because you see people and you know their stories around here, in your mind there's an asterisk there. The, that their uh, membership in the church or, or, or part of the family of God should be questioned in some way because of what they've done in their past. You're missing the whole point of the gospel. I mean, every one of our names in the book of life should have an asterisk. None of us have earned any right to be there. None of us have earned any right to be here. So understand, regardless of your past, there is no sin in your life that's too great that it cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That you're never going to out-sin the grace of God. And so here's Paul, and he's rejoicing with the Galatian believers because he's saying, man, you know my past. I mean, I tried to kill God's family, and I did on occasion. And yet God in the gospel has welcomed me with open arms because of his grace. And because of that, I get to walk free. 
I don't have to deal with that anymore because Jesus has dealt with it for me. He's very much free and you get to be too. And if you've put your faith in Christ, you really are now free from your past. In fact, what's now Paul describes this in his letter to the Colossian believers, Colossians chapter two, verse 13. He says, and you who are dead in your trespasses or sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What does Paul do? He gives this incredible picture, this mental picture of of what is accomplished at the atonement, what's called the atonement, Christ's work on the cross, that when Jesus is nailed to the cross, our sins are nailed there as well. I understand that the gospel changes our conversation about sin. Because before we might've only said, man, he did that, or she said that, or I thought that. But now we get to also say, yeah, that's true, but Jesus died for that. Christ's blood covers that. God's grace is sufficient for that. Can we talk about it in a completely different way? Again, the work of God in the gospel is abundantly gracious. So listen, there's freedom from your past. But secondly, we're reminded this morning that the work of God in the gospel is infinitely powerful. And that means there's hope for anyone. There's hope for anyone. Um, Early, many of my early jobs in high school and college, uh, they were in sales, various sales jobs, everything from selling vacuums, uh, to long distance phone service, you're welcome, to, to vacation packages, like, like that just seemed to be kind of like a trend I did. Um, and, and one of the most common things uh, that we had to do in, in those jobs is we had to put together lists of people that we, you know, thought they might be able and willing to buy what we're selling, whatever that thing might be. And, and these would become kind of like our prospects, right? These would be the people that we contact first and When we do that, one of the things we would do is usually ask, well, do you have any other people that you might refer that you also feel like might be able and willing to buy this thing that I I need to sell or want to sell? If you're in sales, you probably do that as well. That's totally normal in sales. We create these prospect lists. And, and, And so often I think, at least even just maybe subconsciously, we do the very same thing when we think about sharing the gospel with people that we tend to make up a prospect list because for whatever reason, we feel like, man, only certain people or certain kinds of people will actually be saved, will actually turn to faith in Christ. And then what we're saying is then there's other people who aren't like that. And we look at them and we say, man, there is no way that I can ever see him or her ever loving Jesus. But we probably would have said that when we saw Paul before his faith, right? And we would have been absolutely wrong. We would look at him and said, there's no way that Saul is ever going to repent of his sin and love Jesus Christ. The guy who's killing followers of Jesus, no, he's not going to love Jesus. And yet God, in the work of the gospel, changes his life. Now listen, this ought to bring you hope for those in your life that that you desperately want to see transformed from living in darkness to seeing and enjoying the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That there's someone that, for whatever reason, maybe you've shared the gospel with many times. 
someone that you've been praying for for many, many years, and yet they just seem as hardened as ever to the gospel. Or this ought to bring you hope for those in your life um, um, or in this world as well. Because if you believe that God can save anyone, which we believe the Bible teaches, I mean, why wouldn't you pray for? Why wouldn't you share the gospel with those you might see as unsavable? Like, why wouldn't we pray for terrorists whose goal is to kill us as Christians? Right? Like, why wouldn't we pray for politicians whose views and rhetoric are radically different from biblical Christianity? Why wouldn't we pray for false teachers? Why wouldn't we pray for uh, the estranged, angry family member? Or the apathetic teenager or young adult or, or that bitter, hardened senior citizen? Like, why wouldn't we do that? I understand that the work of God in the gospel is infinitely powerful. Paul's just one example of that. But in reality, I mean, just look around the room. We're all examples because none of us sought God. None of us loved him, but now by his grace, we do. That God, through his infinitely powerful work, shines his light in our dark hearts. And now what we see, what we once hated and mocked and ridiculed, now we see as beautiful and our only hope. So keep praying, keep sharing the gospel. God can save. So again, God in the gospel is abundantly gracious, infinitely powerful. Listen, so we can walk in freedom, freedom from our past, freedom from our own rebellious hearts. Again, which if it weren't for the grace of God, we would still be utterly rebellious. So listen, do you ever feel like God would never accept you? That you need to clean up your life before you come to him. Well, the good news of the gospel is you don't. God does the transforming for you. Just come to him. Come to him with open hand of faith, trusting that no matter what you've done or haven't done in your life, God's grace is more than sufficient for your need. But Christian, if you've done that, are you still troubled with guilt from your past? Like, do you still tend to believe that, uh, that the lie that you're standing before God is still somehow determined by your efforts, whether that's before your faith in Christ or even after your faith in Christ? Or the lie that, that you make the slightest mistake today, then all your past mistakes are just going to be rehashed before him. As if God's going to say, well, here he goes again. But you don't have to deal with your sin any longer because Jesus dealt with it on the cross. So you can walk in freedom this morning.